Sleepyheads, it's the holidays, and we are going to spend some of our holiday season nestled all snug in our beds with visions of sugar plums dancing in our heads. So we are going to bring you an encore presentation of one of our first and most beloved programs with Mr. Neil Gaiman, the author. A reminder this holiday season that it is a wonderful time to give a gift to sleeping with celebrities. This program exists because of the kind donations of listeners like you. If this program has been useful in helping you get to sleep, or if you've just enjoyed the conversation, why don't you help us out and help us continue to make this show possible? All you need to do is go to MaximumFun.org slash join, find a level that works for you, and then select Sleeping with Celebrities from the list of programs. Okay, on with the show. Settle down now and get comfy You're about to sleep with a celebrity Let your weary mind be free And someone kind of famous who you can't see It's time for sleeping with celebrities Hello, sleepyheads, and welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. On this audio program, we invite guests to step out of the limelight and into the nightlight. On this show, for one bedtime, I don't want them to rock hard, but rather to rock you gently. It's a podcast where you can sleep, you can simply relax, you can take a break from stress and intensity. Just ahead, we'll be sleeping with a British man named Neil Gaiman, who is going to tell me about making things with live cultures. The lockdown that we had was humanity demonstrating that, you know, even in the case of a full-fledged SCOBY zombie invasion, we, we'd be really just sort of dull at handling it. Before all that, I invite you to settle in and get comfortable while I tell you about another show on the Maximum Fun Network. Sleepyheads, I don't think I have to tell you who Cameron Esposito is, but I will. Anyway, Cameron is a comedian, actor, writer, best-selling author, and podcaster. And speaking of podcasting, she hosts a great one called Query, where she interviews LGBTQ plus luminaries across a bunch of fields, from rock stars to astronauts. Query is now on the Maximum Fun Network. Welcome, Query. Welcome, Cameron. And you can listen to it wherever you find podcasts. And now, my guest, Neil Gaiman. He is perhaps least known for his interest in live culture food preparation, although that might change after tonight. 
Neil is a writer of words, lots and lots of words. Sometimes he puts them together to form graphic novels like The Sandman. He's also had success stringing them together to form popular novels like American Gods or Coraline. His words are so popular that sometimes he'll write them in book form, like the aforementioned American Gods or Coraline, and then a whole bunch of people will turn what's in those pages into a TV show or movie. It's happened quite a lot, but I'm going to stay clear of talking with Neil about what he's working on in the literary space, because it's too exciting for this podcast. I'm really hoping Neil can keep his live fermentation talk with me from turning into a hit comic book. Neil Gaiman, welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. Thank you, John. It's marvelous to be invited to talk. I'd like to start off these bedtime conversations with a question or two about sleep. What is the best night of sleep you've ever had? I think the best night of sleep I ever had was in 2019. Uh, I'd been working on the Good Omens television series, the first season of Good Omens, for a couple of couple of years at that point, and had spent the last year in post production, and it had got to the point where it was taking an enormous amount of time every week. There were there were hundred hour weeks that we were doing without even noticing, um, and you'd have to be in at the office at seven in the morning to approve whatever was coming in. And you'd also be doing ADR, the uh, automated digital voice replacement with actors in Los Angeles. And that might go on till two or three o'clock in the morning. And I just remember getting back to the hotel early one day. It was a Saturday and uh, we had We'd finished early and 4.30 or 5 o'clock, I got back to the hotel and I remember sitting down on the bed and not even taking off my shoes and waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning and taking off my shoes and trousers and sweater and jacket and continuing to sleep until morning. Mm. And... Uh, that one, just best night's sleep. Do you sleep in the same position every night? I'm a roller-overer. Mm. I, I tend to sleep on my side uh, because I get uncomfortable, you know, as a, as a young man, uh, even as a, as a sort of old boy. Mm. When I was 12, 13, 14, 15, I remember I used to sleep on my front, then, then on my back. These days, I sleep on either of my sides, but during the night, I will change sides a lot. Mm. Do you fall asleep easily? Yes and no. Um, I'm amazing at falling asleep when 
it's warm and the environment is dark and something comfortable is happening in front of me. So, mm -hmm. which means that whenever a, I go to a play or to the cinema, I do so with a certain amount of trepidation going, will I be fighting to stay awake? Uh, but um, that is just a sort of a stops moving kind of thing, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm, I sleep, I very rarely get insomnia. Maybe, maybe once every couple of years, I get one of those nights where I can't sleep. And that's normally because I was an idiot and made myself a cup of tea at mm. seven or eight o'clock at night and wasn't thinking. I see. Well, speaking of food preparation, when did you become interested in live culture food preparation? I think um, I'd always had a vague interest in live culture food preparation, um, which moved up in my priority when my son Ash was almost being born mm. because uh, my wife Amanda had had Lyme disease in her seventh month of pregnancy and had had to take a lot of antibiotics. Mm. And we were told, you know, we need to fix the fact that her biome has been blasted by the antibiotics. So I did a bunch of research at that time, which mostly consisted of reading lots of web pages and a few books on fermenting foods, and sent off for water kefir grains. And what, what are kefir what grains? Are, what are those? They are things. Uh, there are two different kinds: water kefir and milk kefir. Uh, so you're probably used to going to a supermarket and passing the kefir, which I've heard pronounced kefir, or kefir, or kefir. Uh, mm. People, people. I've always pronounced kefir, um, but it could be pronounced anyway, I assume. Um, which is basically, if you buy it in a supermarket, a kind of drinking yogurt. Mm. But if you make it yourself, you can either make kefir that is water-based, or you can make milk-based. And either way, it starts with things called grains, which are, of course not grains in the sense that you you normally think about grains. Wheat, um, barley. Exactly. These are little coagulated clumps. In the case of water kefir, uh, they actually look like crystals. Oh. And uh, these sort of small crystal things. Um, in the case of milk kefir, they look more sort of like, like rice, I suppose, little coagulated lumps. And are these they, alive? They are. They are the SCOBY, symbiotic uh, little civilizations, probably not civilizations, of bacteria and yeasts. Hmm. They're little, little 
clumps of various yeasts and bacteria. And uh, you feed them, uh, and they produce a drink for you that is alive with bacteria and yeast while reproducing themselves. How do you feed them? And what uh, do you feed them? Well, I, at this point, have retired from the milk kefir game because uh, although it was great while well, I'm back when Amanda was pregnant, um, I found that I was getting through enormous amounts of milk and not actually drinking the stuff. So I do the water kefir now. I see. Um, how you feed them is with sugar. Mm. If you have ever tried making a kombucha, they call them mushrooms, but again, it's a scoby. Uh, you, with that, you feed it with tea and with sugar, but you do not feed kefir with tea. And the scoby, these weird little crystalline gentlemen, are much more active and work faster than kombucha. What are the scoby crystalline gentlemen made out of? Uh, they're made out of an accumulation mm -hmm. of bacteria and yeasts, and they go back a long way. You can't spontaneously, um, as I understand, having read up a bit, you, you can't spontaneously hope for them to come into your lives in the way that you could go to San Francisco and open a make a make a bowl of flour and water and expose it and hope that the wild yeasts that will arrive in it if you just put it out uh, will be wild yeasts that will make a fabulous sourdough. It's not uh, like a, it's not like a bird feeder. It's not. Uh, with this, you you send off for it, and somebody that you contact online sends you a little plastic tub with a tablespoon or two of these little crystals in it, and you start by pouring water, non-chlorinated water over them, and sugar, and you give them sugar, maybe a little molasses. And uh, your first go-round, your first couple of go-rounds, you're just bringing them to life, waking them up after their journey. And mm. after that, they start breeding at a ridiculous rate, which means that you then look down one day and you have a mason jar that is literally half full of these things. And at that point, the most exciting part, I shouldn't mention excitement, but the most exciting part of dealing with your water kefir grains comes in because it consists of convincing friends to oh. take some of these grains off your hands and start doing it themselves. Because it's growing so fast and, and it could be like in the movie Gremlins? Exactly. Um, it could be just like the movie Gremlins, only instead of 
having small gremlin-like creatures coming out and pretending to be celebrities and causing havoc, you'd simply have a mason jar that was actually filled with these things. Hmm. So you have your mason jar that is filled with rapidly reproducing little guys. And how do you turn that into food? My daughters tell me that I'm incredibly dull when I start telling them about it. But for me, it's very interesting. So I'm very much hoping that there's nobody out there who thinks it's as interesting as I do, because Neil, otherwise... you've come to the right place. Good. What I'd like is for people to go, oh, Neil is talking about something. That voice is just washing over me like, like, grains of kefir. Um, but I will tell you. So the first thing you do is you take your mason jar and your grains and your sugar, say half a cup of sugar, a little molasses maybe, and water non-chlorinated. And you pour your water in. You uh, Because carbon dioxide is going to be coming off you put a cloth top held mm. in place with a hairband that somebody left on my kitchen counter. And while I've never figured out who, it actually works better, I've discovered, than a rubber band, which tend to die and snap. Yeah, and dry snap. up and snap. Exactly. So I've been using that. And uh, really, it takes... 24 hours to 48 hours, depending on heat. And I was very lucky in that I discovered that one kitchen drawer of mine, whether by accident or design, and I would go with the theory that it was definitely by accident, uh, somehow the boiler room below vents oh. into this kitchen unit and... It means that one drawer is always very warm. Mm. So I put it in there. And 36 hours later, 24 hours later, somewhere like that, I check on it. It's probably bubbling away. And if it looks active and is bubbling away, I know that it's fine. And at mm. that point, I strain it into a second mason jar. And in the second mason jar... I also put a bag, a cloth bag, in which I put a bunch of fruit from the freezer, just a raspberry, blackberry, blueberry mix, throw in a handful or two of that. In the mason jar. There is a bag inside the mason jar. Exactly. There's a you know white cotton bag hanging in there on a string. And I pour the liquid, which is brown, in there. And this time I do screw on the top of the mason jar. And I put that beside the first mason jar in the warm drawer. And I come back again 24 hours later and check. And at that point, I have a fruit-flavored reddish fizzy drink that is not too sweet because all of the sugar has been consumed by, by the, the little, little scoby. Guys. 
exactly. They are sugar hungry. And uh, you essentially, as far as I can tell, you go through three stages. And stage one is refreshing fizzy drink. Mm-hmm. And stage two is vinegar, if you leave it longer. And stage three is it starts to taste rather like alcohol. Fermentation. Um, exactly. But I, I tend to stop at refreshing fizzy drink. If you're drinking all these little sugar-hungry guys who have multiplied and taken up more and more of a mason jar, what is stopping them from doing that inside of Neil Gaiman? Uh, well, That's a question I've never asked in an interview in my entire career. Obviously, like, like most people who work with, with either kombucha or sourdough starters, or, or in my case with uh, water kefir, uh, we're all quite terrified of the zombie-like takeover that could sure. happen if we drink too much of this. You know, the, the point where you open your mouth and these crystals spill out. Come shooting or, forth. Absolutely. It's, it's something that I'm sure happens more than is actually discussed generally, uh, especially to bakers. Do you find that you don't like to think about that eventuality, being a live culture food preparer, but you do like to think of that eventuality in your work as a, as a novelist? Obviously, as a novelist, I, I love thinking about doomsday scenarios because doomsday scenarios are, are fun, doomsday scenarios are interesting, and uh, you know humanity is not very good at organizing interesting doomsdays. I, I feel like the lockdown that we had was humanity demonstrating that you know even in the case of a full-fledged scoby zombie invasion, we, we'd be really just sort of dull at handling it. If a person was to be taken over by these scobies, uh, what kind of personality might we expect if we were to meet a scoby-dominated human, say, at a cocktail party? Uh, I think uh, words like fizzy and bubbly come to mind. The kind of words that they used to use in the 1950s to talk about vivacious yet zany redheads. <laughs> okay, well that doesn't sound that bad. No, I, I think, I mean, you know, frankly it could be an improvement for a lot of people. I, I think, you know, if you had scoby run people, they'd be, they'd be fizzy. They'd be bubbly. Yeah. They'd be popping. They'd be effusive. Absolutely. Now, are you um, a sourdough starter enthusiast as well? Do you use this to make bread, or is this only a drinking situation? I was for eight and a half months on the Isle of Skye a, uh, a sourdough person. The problem with being a sourdough person for me is that being a sourdough com- person it's a full-time commitment it's like having a dog Hmm. you can't just go away you can't just 
vanish for three or four weeks. You need to be there. You need to be viewing your sourdough, uh, which I bought when I arrived on the Isle of Skye at the end of April 2020. Um, I bought from a reputable baker selling sourdough starter that went back a hundred years. And, uh, and it was a rye sourdough starter. It liked, it liked rye flour. And I just had the best time uh, with my pet sourdough. I never named it. I was told that you need to name it. But I'm, as you obviously heard from this podcast so far, I, I'm a bit of a rebel. Mm. And I just thought, I'm not naming it. There's only me and the sourdough starter. We're the only living things in the house. I, I don't need to name it. It's you. I, I am me. It didn't just, need to know my name. The pronouns are simple. Have Did you find yourself in extensive conversations with other people who discovered sourdough starters as well? And have you ever had to excuse yourself from those conversations because you couldn't take it anymore. What I tended to get was sad texts or emails from friends who had noticed that I had put photographs of, for example, my bagels mm. or bread up online to let me know that their attempts at sourdough had ended in ignominious failure and asking what they were doing wrong and whether or not I could help. And of course, because they were all in America and I couldn't refer them to this one little bakery in Wales where I'd got my sourdough starter from, um, I don't know how much help I really was, but I, I offered various sort of tips and I liked to think that maybe I'd helped in some way. Is the Isle of Skye a real place or a fictitious setting in a Neil Gaiman book? Sleepyheads, I wish to tell you about another podcast here on the Maximum Fun Network, where we have the maximum amount of fun permissible. The Greatest Generation is a comedy show where the hosts, Ben and Adam, review Star Trek. They started with The Next Generation, have completed Deep Space Nine, and are now reviewing Voyager. It's more than just a recap podcast. They have a cast of funny characters and running gags. They identify the silliest characters in each episode, and they bust one another's chops, all while celebrating their favorite television franchise. The hosts have both worked in film production, so they bring a strong cinema studies and technical knowledge vibe to the proceedings. So you might learn about split diopters in one moment and laugh at an astonishingly vulgar joke about an alien's butt in the next. The Greatest Generation, on Maximum Fun, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Is the Isle of Skye a real place or a fictitious setting in a Neil Gaiman book? Both. You can be both. Okay. Okay. Um, There are lots of places that are both real places and fictitious settings in Neil Gaiman books. I would point to Soho in London. I would point to the entire state of Wisconsin. Mm. Um, I would point to uh, Sussex and uh, and the road that I lived on as a child. They're all places that are at once completely and utterly fictitious. And also you can you can go and visit. A certain wildly improbable house in Wisconsin comes to mind. It was a fairly was fairly improbable house. It still is. It's still there. Yeah. And I get back when I can to say hello to my bees because I, I when you when you leave and you move somewhere else but you leave uh, all of your stuff behind and you know that you're going to stay there sometimes and in fact my my daughter and her friends stayed there through lockdown mm. um you've also got several beehives in the garden and then you need to decide okay am i putting my beehives on a truck and driving them to the state of new york and of course the only answer to that is no only a mad person would do that Right. Um, so Did your daughter tend them. to the bees? My daughter went down and checked on the bees, um, but I am fortunate in that the house has a caretaker slash archivist slash person who looks after everything named Mary, mm. and she has been looking after the bees now for a decade. And actually, I think is probably a better beekeeper than I ever was because she took the night classes in in beekeeping. She is a uh, bee husbander par excellence, whereas I just read the articles online. And uh, when I went with my friend Sharon Steitler, who was my original co-beekeeper, to a meeting a picnic of local beekeepers. Mm. I was sent to sit with the wives of beekeepers. It was felt that, that Sharon was ready for a more dominant role than you were. Sharon was up there with the, the loud gentleman with the many hives. And it was definitely, and, and I look back on it and I go, how was it decided? How did that happen? I was a co-beekeeper. I was as much into bees as Sharon was, and yet, and yet, she was the one who sat with the guys, and I was there with the wives, and the wives would just talk about how awful it was that their husbands would come back from, you know, they'd they'd come back from beekeeping, and they would have failed to notice some bees on them somehow, Mm. and those bees would be in the house, and and I would sympathize with them, but really, I, I wanted to be one of the husbands. You wanted to be the husband. When you are making uh, sourdough and the rye sourdough with the starter that you described, how do you, I guess, I want to know how you make bagels from there. But first I want to know where you get the idea that you can go make some bagels from there. Why bagels? (laughs) You know, when you're all on your own, 
on a Scottish island that may or may not exist. And your encounters with other human beings consist of once a week going to a corner shop in a mask and buying things as quickly as you can mm. and going back from other people in masks. Um, you start to lose any sense of what is right and what is sensible. Mm. And somewhere in there, the idea that I could make bagels um, became incredibly sensible. I'd already made bread and I'd got bread to the point where my bread making skills were actually very competent. I was very, very comfortable with my bread making. I was trying to make crumpets, mm -hmm. which is an English thing that's nothing really like a muffin, but a muffin, I guess, is the nearest thing you can point to. Um, and I had a kind of cooker back there called an arga, which is basically a big metal box. And you can make crumpets directly on the arga. Although my crumpets were never, frankly, great crumpets. They were, they were at best, adequate crumpets. Adequate crumpets. The adequate, and you know, which if anybody is listening to this and is still awake and is trying to name their band, I suggest the adequate crumpets would be a fabulous name, or at least a perfectly adequate name it's, for it's, a band. It's enticing because crumpets, especially served with butter or honey, possibly Nutella, are delicious, but the adequate lowers the expectations for the band, and it, uh, you're, you're okay there. I think that would be really good if, because, you know, hey, hey, we're the crumpets. You can see that one working and people going all crazy for the crumpets. But, sure. But the adequate crumpets. Now you're like a sort of 90s British band. Mm. Um, you know, you're all kind of awkward and none of you are looking at the camera. Yes, it's, it's mumblecore, it's shoegaze. How do you make bagels from your sourdough starter? So the night before, you take your sourdough starter and your flour and you mix them together, a little water, and uh, you just leave them overnight. And the next morning you come down and now all of what you've got in your bowl is sourdough starter. Mm. And now you add your flour, your salt, little water, little syrup to it. Mm. And you take a pan and you put fill the pan with water and you put the water in the pan on the agar top where you have previously cooked adequate crumpets. Mm. to heat up and you know that you've probably got 25 minutes or more before that water is bubbling which it's going to need to be and first of all you get your hands very wet because you are using rye flour 
And rye flour and wheat flour have very different properties. Oh. Um, I would actually bulk out my rye flour with a little barley flour and a little buckwheat flour as well because mm. uh, I'm just wild. Yeah. Um, but the first time I tried making bagels, I assumed that the properties would be the same as the properties of wheat flour and mm. uh, that what you're meant to do is get flour on your hands and then you roll balls and do things with the dough and right. the, f the flour on your hand will prevent the dough from sticking, um, which seems logical and it's what one does with, with wheat flour. But rye flour is a different kind of flour to wheat flour. And it doesn't like that. And if you do that, you basically wind up gluing uh, dough to every possible surface. Anything you've touched, your hands, anything your hands have touched, your face, your clothes, the entirety of the kitchen will slowly become covered in very gluey dough. And what I learned was to have a little basin of water that I would dip my hands in and treat the dough like clay. Mm. So you want to work, you work clay with wet hands and that allows you to shape it and stops it sticking. And to make your pots or simply your pinch pots. Absolutely. Or, or you know, your coil pots. Mm. Or sure. if, if you're a small boy who grew up in the 1960s, the ashtray that you will take home to your parents. With tremendous pride. Enormous pride. You can paint it too, which, and then and then you varnish it, and then you're forever puzzled that your parents don't ever use it to stub cigarettes. Well, your dad, because your mother doesn't smoke, mm. uh, but your your father and his guests do not ever use it to stub cigarettes out in until finally they do, and then the varnish gets all burnt, and mm. it's kind of sad, really. And then you have to carry around this idea that what you have made was not even worth the stubbing out of cigarettes. I think that one of the things that we've, we've come a long way, John, yes. um, as a civilization, and although perhaps we're, we're closer to a point of, you know, climate collapse and, and mm. economic collapse and perhaps even ultimately social collapse and the end of, of humanity as a species, I, I like to think that we no longer have children at school make ashtrays. We've, we've come that far. We have. Where did your father place the ashtray in the home? Uh, on a shelf in the kitchen. Mm. High up? Where people Relatively can see? high. N not where you would immediately go to stub out a cigarette. No, they had big, beautiful glass ashtrays for that. This so was put in a, what I was told was a place of honor. Ah, not utility, but honor. Exactly. So you formed your bagels um, so you pottery begin, style. Exactly, pottery style. You're making things that are kind of like snowball size if you're the kind of person who doesn't make big snowballs. Mm. Um, you, 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 you make a ball, you 
cup it and round it with your hand. And then, uh, if you're me, you just use your thumb to slowly push through the center of it and then turn it into something that's bagel-shaped in the same way that you would if you were working with clay. And then you put your bagels on, uh, having made, I don't know, six of these, eight of these, you put them on a uh, sheet and leave them out somewhere warm to rise a little, and they will they will rise again, puff up. Hmm. And uh, when they are puffy, and the water in that enormous pan that we have hitherto talked about is bubbling, you take your bagels and you drop them one by one in the boiling water. And you don't put too many in at once because the water would stop bubbling. Mm. And you want it to keep bubbling, but the bagel will drop to the bottom and then puff up some more and then it will come and float on the top and you'll put a few more bagels in and then you'll start pulling out the ones that look the most cooked and they'll have been in there for two, three minutes at a time and you put them back on your bagel tray. And then when they're all done, you take your bagel tray and you put it in the oven for 16 minutes. Longer than that, and the crust will get too hard. And if you try and cut it with a bread knife, exciting things will happen, and I still have the scar on my thumb. So do not do that. Um, But 16 minutes, it turned out, is the perfect time. And it took me sort of trial and error to get there. I remember the first few bagels were pretty much unchewable. Too hard. too hard. You could eat them the moment they came out of the oven, but if you tried an hour later once they'd cooled, they were like some nightmarish jaw exercise. And after that, you could break teeth on them or use them for a rockery. But by trial and error, I, I got them to the point where they were incredibly pleasant to eat. I mean, you can. I, I'm not actually talking measurements here but if anybody is still awake and curious if you go and google game and bagel recipe uh google will throw up uh online for you the place where i've done it with photographs and actually talk a little bit about the amounts and quantities of flour and stuff that you use we we will offer a link to that on our show page as well um, when the bagel is is complete, are you a person who toasts the bagel? Do you use cream cheese? Do you use salmon? What's your What's your game? Yes, Cameron? yes, yes to all of these things. Um, I'm a person who I'm I'm always a little wary of bagels at this point. Sure. After I, I cut myself trying to cut a bagel did not want to be cut, I did a little research and discovered, and I hope this isn't too exciting for anybody still listening, still awake, or perhaps drifting in and out of sleep, they will hear this and it will carry it into dreams, but bagel-related accidents 
mm. are responsible for an enormous number of visits to hospital emergency rooms every year. The the bagel, um, you know, the people who invented the bagel, who were Jews, who had been forbidden to bake bread, but were allowed to boil bread, mm. um, thought they were doing a good thing, and, and they were, and the bagel sellers, they would use uh, sticks, like broomsticks, and they would put their bagels on the broomstick, which meant you could carry around a lot of bagels with you, and you just pull off, you would pull off the bagels one at a time hmm. and give them to people, uh, or probably sell them, because you're probably a bagel seller. Uh, these people, they, they couldn't foresee the future. They didn't know that, that bagel-related accidents would be a thing. Right. Is it mostly from slicing that the the problems? As far as I know, it's entirely from slicing. I mean, it, it's possible that occasional bagel-related injuries might be because they've jammed in a toaster and the toaster has then caught fire and the house has burned down. But frankly, I think that would probably be more likely to be logged as as burning and houses burning down than it would be being logged as a bagel-related injury. I, I suppose it's possible that somebody could just try and swallow an entire bagel yeah. at once and like like an ostrich and you know that that could be a bagel related injury too. And obviously thrown bagels, especially the kind that I did first of all before I got quite good at making bagels, uh you know, those bagels, if somebody had thrown one at you, it could have taken an eye out, John. You're Children, it sounds like, have been skeptical of the um, how interesting your live food, live culture prepar food preparation has been. Were they won over by the taste of your bagels and forced to apologize? The truth, the sad truth, the sad dark truth is because I was completely on my own on Sky. They never, ever got to taste a bagel. Mm. It's tragic, but it's true. On the other hand, I have fed uh, my youngest daughter, Maddie, enormous quantities of my water kefir fruit drink, and she has pronounced it good, whereas my uh, older daughter, Holly, has a tendency to politely say, Dad, I, I don't actually like drinks like kombucha with that sort of sour, fizzy thing going on, so I, I don't actually want to. No, I'm not actually even prepared to taste it. Uh, I, I please just put it put it back in the fridge, Dad. Dad, Dad, please. Honestly. Can you provide, let's say, three pieces of advice for anyone listening that wants to get into the live culture food game themselves? Um, yes. Three pieces of advice. Uh, it is worth your while finding somewhere that will send you a viable, happy, anciently colonied um, scoby of some description. The, the bacteria and yeasts that do all of the work and uh, whether it's a sourdough 
whether it's um, it's a kefir of some kind. Obviously, there are, this advice does not apply to things like beer or, or yogurt. Sure. Um, I just we needed to say that because I don't want people writing to you, John, to complain mm. that Thank you know you. they 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 went somewhere fancy for their yogurt starter. Yes. Um, you don't need to go somewhere fancy for yogurt starter. Find somewhere, find somewhere reliable. In fact, that I think would be my my second rule, which is you just don't have to go somewhere fancy for yogurt starter, uh, mm. which Americans pronounce yogurt. Uh, and but you I mean, pronounce say yogurt. yogurt. Yog. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a yog rather than a a yog. Uh, and it's, it's kefir, not kefir. You know, honestly, I do not think there are wrong ways to pronounce it because uh, I have heard every possible way of pronouncing it, except for, you know, Chumley Parkinson or, or, or Fanshawe or something, which, you know, where, where a name like Featherstone Shaw is pronounced Fanshaw or, or Cholmondley is pronounced Chumley uh, or, or, or Magdalen is pronounced Maudlin. And uh, not War as much. Worcester is pronounced Worcester. Worcester or Worcestershire is pronounced right. Worcester. I mean, people say, "Would you like some Worcestershire sauce?" And you go, "It's Worcester sauce." Yeah, Worcestershire. I mean, you just leave off the sheer anyway. The sheer is 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 it's redundant. I'll have some Worcester. Worcester, just Worcester, Worcester sauce. Worcester sauce. Yeah, uh, mash it down. So, uh, so it doesn't need to be fancy. That's number two. And the third, the third is to tend it. Um, if you if you're doing kefir grains, remember to refrigerate them. If you're going on holiday, um, if you have a, I, like I say, I used to balance my um, my sourdough with a f in the fridge and out to wake up so I would let it sleep in the fridge and then for a day or two and then bring it out and feed it and wake it up mm. would you speak to it when you woke it up no that would be weird wow all right. Uh, but I, I mean, I, when I say you, you treat them like dogs and you don't really, I, I mean, if ever you've just sort of sat there going sit or, 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 or roll over or, or beg um, to a sourdough starter or, or to kefir grains, you'll realize after a while that you're frankly wasting your time, John. Do you still have your sourdough starter, or did you have to take it in to be put down? Ah, uh, no. What you do with sourdough starter that you know you will need later, but here you are leaving the Isle of Skye for the twin islands, the many islands of, of New Zealand, mm -hmm. um, is you lay out some saram wrap, first of all, mm -hmm. 
uh, your your sort of plastic covering stuff. You lay out a sheet of that, and then you pour your sourdough starter onto it, and you spread it to a sort of even layer all over the saran wrap. And then you leave it for a day or two, and it will dry out. The moisture will evaporate, and now you will have something brown and faintly crusty. And that brown, crusty thing is a dried sourdough starter. And now you roll up your um, your saran wrap or you, you brush it off it and you put it in a bag or in Tupperware and you pop that into your freezer and you know that it waits for you when you return. You can resuscitate it. You can bring it back to life. Uh, there, are, there are people online who've been culturing up yeasts and starters from ancient Egyptian, so we're talking three, four thousand year old mm. uh, bread baking things where they've they've looked at the bread and they've gone actually there are there are little molds uh, not molds there are, there are yeasts in oh. here and they'll scrape them off and they'll culture them and you can have Egyptian bread or Egyptian beer. Oh. A small a small piece of trivia for you is that it was for years believed by historians, archaeologists, anthropologists that beer making was something that happened as an offshoot of bread making. The bread making came first. Oh. And now people are going, actually, what probably happened was beer-making was first, and then people needed to dry out the starter to travel with it, and they would make lumps of it and put it in the fire. Mm. And at some point, somebody tried it and went, this is good, and that's where our bread came from. Well, Neil, I think this is a good place to stop because this is getting very, very interesting. And oh, that's, I'm that's a risk, so sorry, John. It's a risk that we cannot take at this point. Um, if people start thinking of, of beer and Egyptians, it's... They'll it's, wake up. It's thrilling, yeah. It's so okay. We, you just imagined I was talking about beer and Egyptians. Really, I was talking about mason jars. It's all mason jars. Neil Gaiman, thank you so much for telling us all there is to know about live culture food preparation. It was my pleasure, John, and I really hope that someone out there listening thought it was interesting or at least more interesting than my kids do. All right. Neil Gaiman, good night. Good night, John. Well, sleepyheads, I hope you enjoyed learning about live culture food production as much as I did, which was a lot. Something I like to do as I wind down my day is make a little mental catalog of things that I experienced or learned over the course of that day. So if you don't mind, 
I've got a little list of takeaways from my conversation with Neil Gaiman. I'm going to run that down for you while it's fresh in my mind. One, you can write some of the most beloved books in the world, yet your daughters may still find you dull. Two, bagel-related accidents are responsible for an enormous number of hospital visits. Three, bad bagels can be described as a nightmarish jaw exercise. Four, rebels don't have to name their sourdough starters. Five, only a madman would move to New York and bring his beehives with him. And six, the adequate crumpets would make a fine band name. <sighs> All right, well, I'm going to bed myself. Thank you for sleeping with me and with Neil Gaiman. Follow Sleeping With Celebrities on both Twitter and TikTok using the handle Sleep With Celebs. We're on Instagram where the handle is at Sleep W Celebs. Our email is sleepwithcelebs at maximumfun.org. Our music was provided by the Winterbowers. This show was produced and edited by Laura Swisher. Swish. Tune in next week when we'll be sleeping with Justin McElroy of My Brother, My Brother, and Me. Orlando didn't have an airport of any uh, significance when uh, Disney World opened there in 1971. Sleeping with Celebrities is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Night-night. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist-owned. Audience-supported.